The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie, and joining me today is Stirling's Borough Archaeologist, Dr Murray Cook. Murray, welcome. Hi Tom, welcome to you too, thank you. Now today we're going to be talking about your new book, The Anvil of Scottish History, Stories from Stirling, which is an account of Stirling's history from way back in early antiquity all the way up to the present day. And it tells some really fascinating stories about Stirling's culture, its history, and some of the many different conflicts that have raged here over the years. Thanks for that, Tom. Yeah, the book is really about how central uh, Stirling is to Scottish history. For me, the history of Scotland can actually be walked and measured and witnessed in Stirling in a way that it can't be in any other place uh, in Scotland, including the capital. We actually have everything here from the dawn of prehistory all the way through to World War I and World War II. So Murray, you have many years of excavations, of historical research. What would you say was the, the motivation behind this book? Well, there were a number of motivations, Tom. Uh, the, the first is that the, the first book was simply too small. <laughs> there was so much material. And actually, I decided that with this second book, as I say, it, it, it was really, it's a history of Scotland viewed through Stirling. Because genuinely, you can actually experience 10,000 years of history. Now, obviously, Scotland is millions of years old, but actually the first people are sometime 10, 11,000 years ago. And their story, and the story of their ancestors, the stories of us, is all around the streets in Stirling. So, uh, to me, Stirling is an incredible place. I mean, th there really is nowhere like it in Scotland. I, I genuinely believe there's nowhere like it in Britain. And it's one of those probable places unique Europe in the world where you can actually find such a depth, such an experience of national trends, of international trends, that it really is a must for anybody who cares about Scottish history. After reading your book, it occurs to me, because of the many different tales that you tell about Scotland's historical past, that the story of Stirling, in essence, is the story of Scotland in microcosm. Yes, I mean, that, 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 that's the thing that we have. We're at the very beginning, before Scotland, before anybody came up with the idea of Scotland. We're at the point where Scotland is created. We're at the point where Scotland is tested, where that new nation, uh, Alapa, which gradually becomes Scotland, is actually tested by the English during the Wars of Independence. And then again and again and again that you find the strategic location of Stirling, you're at the crossing point, to control Stirling is to control Scotland. So if you wish to invade or resist invasion, you have to do it at Stirling because the bulk of Scotland is actually to the north of us. 
it's not to the south. This, the south, that's a relatively recent addition to Scotland. Um, as late as the Battle of Bannockburn, 1314, in fact, a hundred years after the Battle of Bannockburn, it was possible to describe Stirling as sitting on the border with England. That's Lothians, that's the Edinburgh, that's Glasgow wasn't part of, of Scotland till relatively recently. Um, so all of these things are significant and central to Stirling, significant and central to Scotland's identity. Now, your book takes us all the way back to prehistory, uh, where there were no written records. Um, and one of the things that you emphasise in your book, of course, is the importance of being able to read these various different excavation sites to tell what was going on, to try and interpret the different rituals and the way of life uh, in those periods. What would you say were the most surprising discoveries that you've made? I think one of the things about Stirling is that actually um, there is a story under every piece of turf. There's a story in every spade. So... You know, in my hand, which I recovered last weekend, is a, a three to four thousand year old um, blade made of quartz. Um, it was actually found on a site called um, Gallow Hill, uh, just beyond Dune. It, Gallow Hill refers to a name in the kind of uh, the 17th and 18th century. Judges went round and actually um, performed judgments, and the gallows are local so that the judge could execute their sentence and this site appears to have a 2,000 year old broch and then when we lifted the spade the thing that jumped out is, is a, a rough piece of quartz but the quartz has been smashed to create blades and, and actually so this is a core from which blades are, have been peeled off quartz is horrible to make tools but this is um, three to 4,000 years old so you've just got this sense of history, this sense of depth, uh, where actually you really don't know what's under the ground. Uh, and archaeologists say that we await the testimony of the spade. And Stirling is full of locations like that. And obviously there are stories that in the book, and the stories that we can tell, but it is possible just to be so visceral, so viscerally connected to the past um, in Stirling that it seems harder um, elsewhere in Scotland, elsewhere in Britain. So I, if you wanted to handle it, Tom. Oh, thank you very much. And actually, do you know, um, I think this says everything about the, the archaeologist's expert eye, because one of the tales that you tell in your book is of Stirling's oldest door. And of course that door is long gone, but you as an archaeologist are able to tell of its existence because of the, where it stood in the ground. Yes, so, so th that door, as you say, is gone, but there is a hole for a pivot where the, the, the hinge, the pole of the door rotated. So, you know, walking through a door, but, but not only that, who came through the door? Um, this particular door is when um, Stirling was part of the, the Roman Empire. Is it possible a centurion came through? We know the name of the general who was in Scotland at the time, General Agricola. Did General Agricola come to inspect a hovel as he would have seen it, uh, dark and smelly from a Roman point of view with all the stone and marble in the, in the forum? But actually, in terms of a local area, this was a chief, this was a member of the elite. He would be very proud of his house. But actually, the contrast of wealth, the contrast of education, the contrast of um, power 
a very asymmetric relationship between the two individuals. Yeah, because the, the Roman connection with Stirling looms large. I mean, we have uh, the gas grid nearby, we have the Roman roads in Stirling, which I know that you mentioned in your in your book. Um, but we also have um, tales, like, for instance, in Fortingal of uh, Pontius Pilate, um, allegedly uh, having a connection with Fortingal, as was reported, I think, in the New York Times. Yes, um, I mean, I mean Stirling, Stirling, because of this crossing point, is central. And so the two major fortifications in in Scotland, Roman fortifications, the Antonine Wall and the Gas Ridge, Stirling sits in the middle of them. So there is a, a long connection of um, literate individuals, of Christians, early Christians writing about um, about Scotland. But equally, uh, people in Scotland have an active imagination. So taking these kind of traditions and running with them. You have the story of Pontius Pilate uh, having a connection to um, Fortingal. Perhaps his his mother was a local. Uh, his father was on a diplomatic trip, and the proof, as uh, evidenced for this, was actually a stone uh, with PP uh, carved onto it in the uh, the Fortingal Cemetery. Now. The thing is, it's, it's a great story. We don't know where the stone is. There's no evidence that Pontius Pilate's father was in Scotland. But that doesn't stop these stories accumulating and growing. But actually, what they demonstrate is that what they demonstrate is the the wealth of connections. So all these early accounts of Northern Britain are actually being written around the Stirling area, between Glasgow, Edinburgh, Stirling. This is the literate area. This is where Romans are encountering barbarians. The barbarians are encountering Romans. We have um, the first waves of Christian conversions have to be here because this is the frontier between the known world and the unknown world. Um, and these Roman remains reflect that. Well, do you know, it's an amazing thing, because when you passed me that piece of quartz a moment ago, um, it's astonishing, that tactile connection to hundreds and hundreds of years of history, uh, and, and you wonder you know, who forged it and who used it uh, all those years ago. But when you come to Stirling, the amazing thing is that sense of connection that you can feel with characters like Robert the Bruce and, uh, and those who came after him because of the buildings that are still here, such as Argyle's Lodging, Kirk of the Holyrood, um, and of course, Campus Kenneth Abbey. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's often said that um, Stirling is is basically the best preserved medieval city in um, in Scotland, and you are looking at thousands of years, hundreds of years of accumulation. And what's surprising is just literally what's underneath those um, underneath those streets. So, a few years ago, we outside the station. We organised the excavation of uh, the Dominican uh, Priory and this uncovered a skeleton. The skeleton was a friar in the Dominican Priory. We knew that because of his belt and uh, because he was a Christian we were uh, we had to organise a reburial of him which was, was good fun and we, we did that. But the thing, the genuinely surprising thing about this individual was when he died. He died during the Wars of Independence. Now, we know that a Dominican uh, friar spoke to Wallace ahead of the, um, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. 
We know that Robert the Bruce stayed in the Dominican Priory. We know that Edward I stayed in the Dominican Priory after the Battle of Falkirk. This individual who we excavated, who we reburied, whose grave uh, sits under the castle, whose new grave sits under the castle, was actually a witness to the, the major events in Scottish history, the two most important battles in Scottish history. And, and you can go and see his grave. Um, and you can think about the, the depth of time uh, and actually the connectiveness. And actually, 700 years ago, the Battle of Bannockburn, it's, it's the blink of an eye. Um, but there is a visceral, a visceral tangible connection to that in Stirling when you walk the streets. Well, I mean, you've mentioned Stirling's amazing architectural preservation. Um, I do wonder, though, is that the thing that makes it most unique amongst Scottish cities, or are there other factors as well, would you say? Well, uh, so, the, so there, are, there are definitely other factors, um, but it, it's worth expanding on why Stirling has such a, a wealth of medieval um, remains. In 1600, um, Stirling was basically one of the most important places in uh, in Scotland. It had been a favourite of the Stuart royal family. So we know uh, James V is crowned here, Mary Queen of Scots is crowned here, James VI is crowned here, we think James IV is born here, James III is born here. So you have all of those Stuart monarchs investing and reinvesting in Stirling and actually making it one of their favourite places to be. So um, in terms of charters, both James IV and James V signed more charters in Stirling than any other place, with the exception of Edinburgh. Um, so all of all of that is there. Then with the Union of the Crowns in um, 1603, um, Stirling goes from being uh, one of the most important places in Scotland to a regional backwater in Britain. So there, the money stops. There's no reinvestment. There's nothing. So you have... Uh, incredible renaissance palaces incredible medieval churches the best preserved city walls in scotland all frozen in time and and abandoned uh, and they're still there yes an awful lot of the city an awful lot of the city was pulled down uh, between the the 30s and the 60s um an astonishing amount of material um it looked like it had been raised to the ground um but so much is left but that factor about the, the Stuart popularity is connected to the, its geographical position. So Stirling is strategically important to the Romans, to the Vikings, to the Wars of Independence, to Cromwell, to the Jacobites. I, I mean, honestly, nowhere else in Scotland can you walk from a 10,000-year-old prehistoric shoreline on a lost sea to a siege where Bonnie Prince Charlie stood, to somewhere where Wallace stood, where somewhere where Bruce stood, Edward I stood, to Cromwell, um, to uh, Agricola, must have marched through Stirling. And you can wander these locations in 20 minutes. And Stirling is so small, and everything that took place um, it took place in a very, very small area, which of course is why the book is called The Anvil of Scottish History. Mm. And, you know, that's an intriguing thing that you bring that up about the Stuart monarchs, because in a very real sense, Stirling was where the United Kingdom was born, because James VI, when he became James I, rode south to London from here. Uh, this was his starting point. And so urban legend has it 
by the time he got to Berwick upon Tweed, the wooden bridge that was there scared him so much when he went across on his horse. That's why we have the old bridge now. <laughs> yes, well, that's very true. Um, and, and yes, um, Stirling is where he rode. Stirling was his home. Stirling was where his grandparents and great-grandparents... I mean, and, and of course, his claim to the throne is is that marriage of James the Fourth to Henry the Eighth's sister, um, and that's where the Stuart link to the um, to the Tudors comes from. That's where the claim comes from. And also, bear in mind that um, that Reformation uh, that Scotland undergoes in 1560 was very, very vociferously Protestant. So that makes um, that made the the Stuart monarchy acceptable to English Protestants, who, of course, uh, following the the kind of death of Elizabeth I, feared a counter Reformation, uh, a, a return to Bloody Mary, um, and so so James was acceptable um, to that in in much the same way as the Stuarts uh, were ultimately replaced. So James the Second of England, James the Seventh of Scotland, the last Catholic monarch is replaced by his daughter and his son-in-law who also happens to be his nephew uh, William of Orange uh, because they were Protestant, they were vociferously Protestant and you know the current monarchs um, who of course style themselves the Windsors uh, owe their occupation of the British throne to their descent from the Stuart line uh, it all goes back to the Stuart lines and it all goes back to Stirling and I should add, if you would like to see that fantastic old bridge in Berwick, which replaces the one that scared James VI and first so much, you can actually see it in Outlaw King on Netflix. <laughs> Very good. So, Murray, that being said, you're a visitor to Stirling, you're coming here for a few days, what would you say are the, the best historical sites that you'd recommend to someone coming here? Well, Tom, I thought about this, and I, and I, I was, how, how do I actually do this? Do I come up with ten? Do I come up with five? And I thought five. I thought five must be, must be the key. So, um, the first thing I would do is uh, Torwood Broch. Now, uh, brochs are unique to Scotland, and they are the best preserved evidence for upper floors <laughs> in northwest Europe and this is the best preserve of the brochs in the area there are between 30 and 40 of them depending on what you count and and this has a doorway a staircase so this is one of the oldest staircases in the area I then thought something roughly contemporary Ardoch uh, 12 13 miles from Stirling actually in Perthshire this is a timber Roman fort on the gas bridge, it's the best preserved timber Roman fort in the world. Definitely worth seeing. I also thought that um, our friar, the Dominican friar that I mentioned, I think it's worth seeing his grave simply because of his the connection that he might have seen Wallace and Bruce Edward the First. Absolutely incredible. Um, there's another site. Uh, I don't think you can come to Stirling without seeing the castle, but. And the castle is a whole day. You could easily spend a day in the castle. But what I think you should see is the oldest bit of the castle, which is the footings of a chapel that was probably built in the early 12th century, around 1110, by Alexander I. And this is the first of three chapels in, in the, the castle. The middle one, which is raised 
uh, was where Mary Queen of Scots was crowned. The one that's upstanding is the one James VI built, but this one, which sits under the Stirling Heads um, exhibition, founded by uh, Alexander I, and still standing after Robert the Bruce uh, destroyed the castle immediately after Bannockburn. I think that's a very visceral connection to um, to the past. Uh, the old, basically the oldest building in Stirling. Um, finally, I don't think you can come to Stirling without seeing Bannockburn. Now, I don't mean day one and the Bannockburn Visitor Centre, which of course you should visit, but actually day two. Now, everything we think about Bannockburn is actually day two. Um, day one was, was good. It was a well-received well plan. Uh, the Bruce won, but nothing happened as a consequence of day one. Day two is where Edward the first, Edward the second rather, was completely beaten, completely humiliated, and, and that's what secures Scotland's freedom. So everything you think you know about Bannockburn is day two. So I think you should definitely go and find day two. And of course, um, for me, uh, day two is, is particularly poignant because we actually have an eyewitness's account of, of the battlefield. There's a man called Robert Baston, who was a, a poet, a Carmelite, who was brought by Edward II to record his stupendous victory. Um, and of course, uh, a supreme act of hubris. Bruce captured him, made him write a poem, and then released him. So uh, this poem, the most famous translation of which was uh, done by, by the Macker for the reopening of the, the Scottish Parliament, but it describes the actual bodies on the battlefield, the piles of um, uh, booty. So here's a couple of lines. Many are overthrown, many are pierced by darts, many sink down, and many are captured alive. They are bound by fetters, and many ransoms are asked for. Throughout the length and breadth of the field, the space is heaped with plunder. Words that are full of menace are annulled. I think it's when you stand in the battlefield, have a copy of this poem, Robert Baston's Bannockburn, with you, and actually just think about the dead. Think about the dying. Think about the, the hopes and dreams crushed. Think about soldiers coming from England to march to a country they don't understand but they've been told is theirs and actually being defeated and killed um, and, and I, I don't think there's any more poignant location in Scotland than Bannockburn Day 2 Well for those of you who are new to extremist publishing, um, we're based here in Stirling and I've lived here for many years and I can honestly say hand on heart the overwhelming majority of the stories you will read in Murray's book came completely new to me. Um, they really are quite extraordinary and I would say if you have any interest in history generally or in Scottish history particularly, you will not want to miss this book. It really contains so many fascinating facts uh, and really unusual uh, tales um, that help to bring this wonderful place alive. Thanks very much Tom, high praise indeed. <laughs> The Anvil of Scottish History is available to buy from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. I hope that you'll join us again soon. And Murray, thanks once again for joining us. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure as always.
If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.